from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, February 4th. Today, the crackdown on protests in Russia and Pfizer's attempts to squeeze an extra dose out of its vaccine vials. Earlier this week, Alexei Navalny was sentenced to two years and eight months in a Russian prison. Navalny is an opposition leader in Russia and a prominent critic of Vladimir Putin. The post-Moscow bureau chief, Robin Dixon, has been reporting on his court case and how it started a huge outcry around the country. So we're seeing at the moment protests across Russia, not just in Moscow, but in more than 100 cities across the country in freezing temperatures in many places. And we're seeing riot police dispersing those protests very forcefully at times using batons, stun guns and violence. And the reason why people are protesting is because of the arrest and jailing of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Who is essentially Putin's strongest rival, and he's also a strong anti-corruption campaigner who's been working hard to expose the kleptocracy of the Russian state since um, around about 2011. And he's done that by releasing a whole lot of viral videos telling the story of how some of the bureaucrats, um, security chiefs, politicians, even spokesmen have acquired palaces and large duches and millionaire lifestyles, yachts, mistresses and so forth, and how those types of lifestyles are really out of sync with their rather modest state salaries. He keeps asking the question, where is the money coming from? And he's managed to, I think, illustrate to many Russians just how corrupt the state has become. What has precipitated this most recent round of of protests and outrage from Russians? In August, um, in late August, Alexei Navalny was in the city of Tomsk where he was meeting with members of his local headquarters and he suffered a a terrible poisoning attack. It was very dramatic. He was on an aeroplane and um, audio footage of that incident, we could hear him screaming in pain. Um, The only reason he really survived this was that the pilot took dramatic action and diverted the plane to Omsk. And the medical crew on the ground worked very quickly to save his life. And even though um, initially authorities really resisted allowing him to leave the country. He was eventually allowed to go to Germany for medical treatment where it was found that he had been poisoned with a chemical-grade nerve agent in the Novichok class, which is a Soviet-era nerve agent, highly toxic and really only available to state actors. It's not something you can go and buy on the dark web. Mm -hmm. So people 
suspected that the state was involved. There are no guns, there are no shots, and in a couple of hours you will be dead and without any traces on your body. It's something terrifying and Putin is enjoying it. Navalny has accused Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, of responsibility for ordering that attack on him. I'm sure that he's responsible. But for ordinary Russians, many of whom really didn't buy into Navalny's idea that it was Putin to blame, they were nonetheless quite shocked at the way he was treated when he did fly back home and the fact that he was immediately imprisoned. So if Navalny believed that he was poisoned essentially by the Russian government and he was recovering and safe in Germany, then why did he try to come back to Russia last month? Uh, It took a lot of courage. You know, there he was nearly dead and he's coming back facing the possibility of a threat to his life and future. Why would you do that? Maybe it would be more effective Mm. to work um, in his anti-corruption cause and pro-democracy cause from outside the country. But in Russia, it's not really possible to be an opposition politician outside the country. You really do become completely irrelevant. People do not see you as part of the of their ecosystem and they're not interested Mm. in listening to you particularly. Um, And I suppose it's not that different to what you'd expect in any country. I mean, imagine trying to run for vice president from Paris or London. No one would take Mm -hmm. you seriously. And it's the same in Russia. You just don't have the same um, resonance if you're outside the country. Mm Mm-hmm. But then when he arrived, he was arrested and and now he is in the custody of the government. What are the charges that he is arrested on? And are those real charges for real criminal acts? So he's facing um, several different criminal charges. And on Tuesday, he was jailed for two years and eight months over a case of violating a suspended jail sentence from 2014. And the European Court of Human Rights had already ruled that that 2014 case violated his rights and ordered it to be overturned. But as Navalny's lawyers pointed out in court, that never happened. And he says the other two cases against him are also political. And specifically when it comes to Navalny, what does the Russian government or what does Putin say about the fact that, at least from the appearance of it, that these seem like very political charges? Like, are they like fighting against the idea that this is basically because they want to get rid of someone from the opposition? Or are they pretending like this is a legitimate form of prosecution? To them, these are legitimate cases and they would strongly reject any um, what they call interference in Russian domestic affairs. They've been very strong about the fact that they are ignoring any Western pressure about this particular case. And in fact, there were Western diplomats in the court Tuesday, uh, many Western diplomats observing the hearing to make sure that um, Navalny's rights were observed and to form their impressions about the importance of the day. And Russian um, officials were warning them that they shouldn't be interfering in Russia's internal affairs. Hmm. Interesting. And then what about how the Russian public is reacting to this. Are they outraged at the fact that Navalny is now going to be imprisoned? Well, I think we've seen quite a pivot 
since the middle of the year. Um, in the middle of the year, when he was poisoned, there was um, surprisingly little Russian outrage about the fact that the main opposition leader had been poisoned and that there were credible allegations that it was Novichok um, later proven in European labs and, uh, you know, lots of compelling evidence that this was likely a state operation. I think a turning point was the release of a viral video about a large palace on the Black Sea that Navalny alleges was built for Vladimir Putin. Представляем вам самый секретный дворец в России, дворец Путина под Геленджиком. Вот он, прямо перед вами. It's worth more than a billion dollars, supposedly. And before that, people saw the president as a, a traditional and rather conservative character, but one who had Russia's best interests at heart and was building Russia as a great state surrounded by enemies. Hmm. And after that point, it sort of hit a note for a lot of people because it, it tended to suggest that maybe he was sitting on top of this great big corrupt system and um, was actually benefiting from it as well. What we're seeing now is a lot of very young protesters. I've met many students who have come out and protested for the, for the first time ever. Um, and even some, you know, in their 30s that have, who have come out and protested for, for the first time ever. So if you talk to them, they'll say, yes, I am afraid. I'm, I am afraid of what could happen to me and what could happen to my family. I don't want to be beaten up, but I am afraid for the future of my country. And I, I don't think the country's moving in the right way. And I don't like the direction things are going. I want a country to be free. Um, one young woman I spoke to on Sunday said... There are many new laws that have been introduced that are making it harder to protest and, and more difficult to dissent. And I, I'm not happy with what is happening in my country. I've also spoken to some young protesters who are concerned about the possibility of Putin's extended term in office and constitutional changes that came in through a vote last summer that give him the option of potentially staying in power for many, many years up until potentially 2036 if he chooses to seek elections. And this is a notable group that the Kremlin seems to be very sensitive about because in the last two years, Putin's popularity has really slumped quite dramatically in that particular age group. And the question is, Are they becoming politicized or is this hmm. really a flash in the pan that, that the Russian authorities can crush and deter them from coming out and keep them at home? And what is the answer to that question? Well, I don't think anybody knows. On um, Saturday, when people tried to come out in the streets of Moscow, they really couldn't get anywhere at all. It was like a military operation. They had so many riot police blocking mm. off so many locations. And we had a game of cat and mouse between these young protesters and the the riot police. The opposition kept calling new locations and people would move to those locations and the riot police would move and run at the, the crowd and grab people and drag them away. And there was quite a lot of violence used um, to suppress the supporters. 
On Tuesday night, as soon as the verdict came in after 8pm, people started to gather in central Moscow and there was really some quite um, serious beatings being delivered and there was tasers being used against protesters and it was some of the most violent arrests that we've seen. which is, uh, I think, a very worrying sign. But the message to people is if you get involved in these protests, you will suffer. Perhaps you could lose your place in university. Perhaps your family could suffer. Don't go to the protests. And now even the movie theatres, the advertisements at the the start of a movie is a, a very grim sounding voice telling you do not go to these unsanctioned Mm. protests you will regret it (laughs) oh wow that's the message that's actually terrifying Mm. but at the same time I think one of the interesting elements of this is that a lot of young celebrity icons have come out in in Navalny's favor very famous YouTube bloggers sportsmen celebrities writers of cult science fiction novels, and that has been one of the drivers of youth interest in these protests. Another element has been TikTok videos, one point free Navalny hashtags on TikTok videos spiked at 200 million views, which did alarm the Kremlin. Um, And there was one very amusing one by a young TikToker, which was advice on how to pass yourself off as an American tourist at the protests. Just say, I'm American. I'm American. Внимание на произношение. Прям, I'm American. I'm American. I'm American. And giving them various phrases like, I'm gonna call my lawyer. Вы берете телефон и говорите, я сейчас позвоню своему юристу. I'm gonna call my lawyer. Gonna. I'm gonna call my lawyer. Gonna. I'm going to. And these are echoing across the country. However, once you started to see a lot of viral activity there with these videos being shared and reshared, the authorities have demanded that TikTok remove all of those and many of them have in fact been removed. And we can expect to see more and more pressure on big social media outfits um, as the Kremlin seeks to gain as much more control over society. Well, I'm wondering, is there a world in which these protests result in something meaningful from the government, like addressing the fact that so many people are outraged by what's going on? I think that's a very good question. Um, I think that the Kremlin doesn't really have a strategy um, or a vision that is attractive to young people. I think that Putin's early term in office um, was helped by the fact that oil prices were very high and that made it easy for him to show growth and progress and economic benefits and so forth. But in recent times with oil price low, things have become a lot tougher. He's had to reform pensions, which has annoyed older people. And the vision that he um, was able to sort of provide around, around about 2014 when he annexed Crimea, a sort of a rally around the flag, Russia is great, um, effect is now also beginning to fade. 
the COVID-19 pandemic has hit people hard, especially small and medium businesses. So there's a sort of a feeling of helplessness and a feeling of a lack of economic direction. And it's not clear where any kind of vision or hope of a new Russia is going to come from. Well, it also sounds like there is a challenge here for the Russian government in terms of the international response. The fact that so many countries have spoken out against what Putin and the Russian government has done here. The Biden administration has talked about how they're concerned about what's going on in Russia right now. But does that matter to the Russian government? Like, do they care what any other countries think about what they're doing? I think we're seeing a shift, quite a a definite shift right now. Um, We're seeing Putin shifting to a much more authoritarian approach. And he's doing that in the lead up to 2024, which um, is supposed to be or was supposed to be his the end of his term in office. And he's now given himself the option of staying for longer and contesting elections. And in order to sort of pull that off, you need more control um, over the society. And that's what they're trying to achieve. So we're, we're waiting to see how strong the response is going to be. Um, we know that in September, then presidential candidate Joe Biden did attribute responsibility for Navalny's poisoning to the Kremlin. And he vowed that as president, he would make sure that Russia paid for misdoings and for actions against the United States as well. So in Russia, they're definitely expecting a tougher response and there there is an expectation that sanctions might be levelled. President Biden has made it clear that he intends to work with European leaders and coordinate the response with European leaders and I think that could make a difference as well. But the big question is what will they do and when will they do it? Robin Dixon is the Moscow bureau chief for The Post. On Thursday afternoon, President Biden gave his first major foreign policy speech since taking office. In that speech, he condemned the actions of the Russian government. The politically motivated jailing of Alexei Navalny and the Russian efforts to suppress freedom of expression and peaceful assembly are a matter of deep concern to us and the international community. Mr. Navalny, like all Russian citizens, is entitled to his rights under the Russian Constitution. He's been targeted, targeted for exposing corruption. He should be released immediately and without condition. And now, one more thing. Producer Ariel Plotnik talked with Chris Rowland, who covers the business of healthcare for The Post. He's been reporting on a quirk of the vaccine supply chain that's affecting the available doses of Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine. This story is really about drug giant Pfizer's quest to extract a sixth dose out of its vials. Injectable medications always have extra amount of medicine or vaccine in the vial. It's called overfill. And overfill is put in there because drug companies and hospitals and doctors and nurses and everybody who gives vaccines knows that there's some extra that gets stuck in syringes and needles when you administer a shot. 
that extra is typically wasted in a standard syringe and it has to be thrown out. And so that's why drug companies put extra stuff in the vial so that you can get your full doses out and still have a little bit left over that can be stuck in the syringe and it's not a problem. Pfizer, back last summer, when they were working on developing their vaccine, anticipated that, you know, the vaccine rollout was going to be accompanied by shortages of vaccine. I mean, they can't make hundreds of millions of doses all at once. And so they started looking at ways they could use that overfill for a sixth dose. So what did Pfizer do to try to get a sixth vaccine dose from the overfill? They literally sat down with dozens of syringes and needles and lots of vials of vaccine and started doing tests on which ones were effective at getting out as much vaccine as possible with as little wastage as possible left inside the syringes and the, and the needles. A standard syringe has a certain amount of space inside of it uh, between the syringe and the needle and where the plunger pushes down. The syringes they were testing, uh, the best ones were called low dead space syringes. The best ones are uh, a single unit, so the, the needle is permanently attached onto the syringe. The plunger has a really good fit against the top of the needle, and you're wasting just really, really tiny, tiny amounts. The Pfizer people were realizing, okay, well, we can reliably get a six dose out of these vials, but there's not many of these low dead space syringes around. These are specialized equipment. They're often used for super precious, very expensive drugs for like oncology. And so they're pretty rare. There aren't that many of these low dead space syringes made. So Pfizer realizes that with this low dead space syringe, they can get a six dose out of their vials. Then what happened? They were sort of doing this research for the six dose in parallel in the background. They hadn't totally figured out the six dose angle. They just stuck with the five dose. They played it safe. You know, they did what they knew would, was possible. In the meantime, a lot of providers out in the field had discovered when this vaccine was first approved back in the December 11th, and in really literally immediately in the days following as it started to be administered around the country, vaccinators realized that if they use the right kind of syringe, they could actually get more than five doses. And so this all sort of came to a head at once right around the holidays. Dr. Brooke Watts is the chief quality officer here and was among the first to realize there were more than the expected five doses of vaccine per vial. But what we've learned from our colleagues around the state and country is that if you follow the manufacturer's directions very specifically, you actually have six full doses in each vial. So as word started to spread, word of mouth in the provider community that, hey, you can get a sixth dose out of these vaccine vials, People would be look up in frustration and say, well, we don't have the right kind of syringe that didn't come in our kit. We're just getting a syringe that we can only get five out. And so there was a big outcry about that there wasn't enough of the low dead space syringes going out with the kits. And essentially the overfill was still being wasted. So what the government did and Pfizer did was pull together a list of low dead space syringes, but then there's also low dead space needles that you can screw on to other syringes. And there's like these mix and match combinations that Pfizer has now come up with. Uh, and they have a list of like 35 different combinations that theoretically providers will be able to utilize 
what they did was scrape up enough of these alternative syringes that they now say that there is sufficient supply going out with all Pfizer vaccine and that providers should be able to uniformly now extract the sixth dose. That's not entirely clear that that is true yet. Providers so far and pharmacists, hospital pharmacists are saying right now they don't have a uniform supply of low dead space syringes in the kits they're receiving from the federal government. It seems like one way to have avoided there being um, a backup of these low dead space syringes would have been for Pfizer to just tell the FDA uh, that they might have had a sixth dose in the first place. That way, the market could have been working earlier to produce more syringes. Why didn't they tell the FDA? Pfizer was also not sure whether or not there would be sufficient supply if they could come up with the right amount of syringes. They were concerned about the lack of supply. It wasn't until they had done all this work testing all these different syringes that they felt comfortable. So that's their explanation for that. The standard way of doing it was a five-dose vial. We're not going to change course until we know it can actually really be done. Back then in the summer, I don't think Pfizer envisioned that they would have the production crunch that they're having now that has really made that overfill turn into an extremely precious commodity. Chris Rowland covers the business of healthcare for The Post. Ariel Plotnick is a producer on our show. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. You can always catch up on recent episodes of this podcast by going to postreports.com. That's where you'll find our episode archive, as well as links to articles with more context and details about the stories that you hear on this show. You can also sign up for our daily email blast, which sends you a message every afternoon when a new Post Reports episode comes out. Find all of that at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.